At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. know what globalists means, right? We all know what globalists is a euphemism for what it means among the QAnons and the fascists and the MAGAs and the Trumpists and the Republicans, right? As ever, in the endless flow of perversion and evil and sickness coming out of Trump, there is so much all at once that you can miss some of it. Wednesday in Detroit at the fake rally with the fake union members. You need to send a message and join the ultimate strike against the globalist class by casting your vote for. He followed that up with a social media post quoting, of course, himself. Same thing. Join the ultimate strike against the globalist class. And of course, that is the rare double dog whistle because to anti-Semites like Trump, globalist means Jews. But it also has a clean meaning dealing with the interconnections of the modern world internationally. And he got away with strike there because he was nominally addressing the labor action by the United Auto Workers. And of course, if you think he was telling his cult of thugs to take labor action against those dealing with the interconnections of the modern world, congratulations on awakening from your nine year coma. Trump began to covertly attack Jewish people as soon as his presidential campaign began. He threatened globalists at the United Nations. This is nothing new. But the use of that term ultimate strike should set off any remaining alarm bells which have not been ringing continuously all this time. This is not a complicated calculation. If Donald Trump determined that he could get elected by beginning a full-fledged pogrom against Jewish people, Jewish influence, Jewish whatever, he'd do it. When we speak of him as having the soul of a mass murder, that's what we mean. People do not have any actual value to him. They don't exist for him. 
reenact the Holocaust in whole or in part to get reelected? To stay out of jail? Of course he'd do that. And he'd do it to any group you could name. If he became convinced that he could regain the White House by rounding up and killing all the left-handed people, he would do it. But, of course, the issue of the globalists is one of the few that actually resonates with something inside Trump's semi-human brain, because he is an anti-Semite. It is just two weekends since he reposted a meme on Rosh Hashanah created by some clown who used to be on this Real Housewives of New Jersey show called Siggy Flicker. Quote, Just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believed false narratives. Let's hope you learned from your mistake and make better choices moving forward. Happy New Year. And then there was a reference to all the things Trump supposedly has done for Jewish people and the rhetorical question, what Nazi anti-Semite ever did this? And this flicker woman misspelled Nazi. It was a year ago when Trump insisted that American Jews, quote, have to get their act together before it is too late. And he again pushed the calumny that Jews are loyal to Israel and not to the United States. And at the White House on Hanukkah once, he referred to your country, meaning Israel and the dinner with the avowedly anti-Semitic Nick Fuentes and Kanye West and the praising of Hitler to his former chief of staff, John Kelly. And the Vanity Fair article from 1990, quote, Ivana Trump told her lawyer that from time to time, her husband reads a book of Hitler's collected speeches, which he keeps in a cabinet by his bed. A story that was confirmed by the former chief of Gulf and Western and Paramount, Marty Davis, who gave Trump that book. And I'm sorry if this is all old news for you, but it seems to me that the process of normalizing Trump began when we stopped reviewing at least the worst evidence of his malignancies each time he added to one of his countless lists of them. Join the ultimate strike against the globalist class. It's not some random throwaway line. He did it in Detroit because, who knows, the fact that he was talking about an actual auto workers strike gave him the opportunity, or it was an homage to the great anti-Semite role model, Henry Ford. Who knows? But if a man is standing there holding a gun and nothing happens to you, For minutes or hours or days or years, you do in fact begin to get used to the idea that the man is holding a gun and you do begin to stop thinking that he is about to use it. He just told voters to join him as he uses the goddamned gun in the ultimate strike against the globalist class doesn't mean anything what are you worried about it's just rhetoric doesn't mean a thing unless it will get him into the white house or after he's already in the white house unless it'll keep him there oh and by the way the new york times photographer who insisted those were union members trump talked to in detroit finally has deleted his tweet it happened yesterday afternoon the impression though continues to linger that trump was talking to striking auto workers rather than non-union parts manufacturer employees who were ordered into that room by the owner of their plant and it lingers because 
Trump's people gave those people signs reading auto workers for Trump and union members for Trump. And the newspaper, the Detroit News, did what every news organization should do every time for every Trump story. The reporter went and asked the people holding the signs, quote, one individual in the crowd who held a sign that said union members for Trump acknowledged that she wasn't a union member. Another person with a sign that read auto workers for Trump said he wasn't an auto worker. The Detroit News buried it in paragraph 17, but still they did better than the New York Times initially did. And of course, nobody noticed that the line about the ultimate strike against the globalist class happened during that speech. It was not included in the Detroit News story or anybody else's story for that matter, or that when he said it, he was in Clinton Township, Michigan, or noted the coincidence that he first used an anti-Semitic meme against Hillary Clinton in 2016. There is a list somewhere, and we know it has her name on it, along with everybody else he's directed stochastic terror towards. The subtext to all of it is that it doesn't really matter to Trump. Maybe he was angry enough at General Mark Milley to briefly have really endorsed the idea that the, quote, punishment would have been death. But ultimately, again, it's a calculation. If he calculated that making Mark Milley his vice presidential running mate would get him to the White House, he would do it. And if you doubt that for a minute, that when you peel back each layer of Trumpian psychosis and cynicism and lack of belief in anything, all you find is another layer of exactly the same thing. Every once in a while, it gets freshly confirmed for you. The attack on the New York judge, Arthur Angeron, quote, this political hack must be stopped. It's based on nothing. What I mentioned yesterday turns out to be only the half of it. Trump now insists Mar-a-Lago could be worth $2 billion, but Engeron said it's worth $16 million, therefore he must be stopped. As I mentioned, three years ago, the tax assessors of Palm Beach County, Florida, said Mar-a-Lago was worth $26 million, and Trump said, no, that's too high. He appealed the tax assessment. He wanted it to be worth less than $26 million. Now, the website Messenger reports, it turns out that on November 16, 2020, Trump withdrew the appeal of the tax assessment and agreed officially with the government that Mar-a-Lago is worth no more than $26 million. So he has put Engeron's life at risk because Engeron said the place was worth $16 million, but Trump agreed in writing, in a filing, that it's worth $26 million. And it's not just madness, it's mundanity. And we have a new page in the stochastic threats against NBC and the entire news media, too, the country-threatening treason bullcrap, which I will grant Trump probably does believe that. The outgoing editor of the Washington Post, Marty Barron, has the inevitable book coming out, and in it he says that during Trump's tenure in the White House, Trump had Jared Kushner try to get the Post's publisher, Fred Ryan, to fire him as editor because the paper thoroughly covered Trump's conspiracy with Russia to illegally influence the 2016 election. Quoting the book, 
With no delay and without pause during his four years as president, Trump and his team would go after the Post and everyone else in the media who didn't bend to his wishes. In December 2019, Kushner would lean on Ryan to withdraw support for me and our Russia investigation. Unquote. At one point after a dinner with the Post executives and Trump and Kushner, this idiot Nepo baby and Nepo son-in-law Kushner thought he was close to actually getting the Post to somehow make it all up to Trump. Barron writes Kushner, quote, suggested the Post issue an apology and there be a reckoning of some sort as he advised that he himself had made a huge mistake in once standing by a former editor of the New York Observer and one of its stories when he owned the publication. Standing by my editor at that time was the biggest regret in the 10 years I owned the newspaper, he wrote in the email to Ryan. Kushner's intent was clear to me. He aims to get me fired, I told Ryan. Well, I mean, it's better than charging Barron with country-threatening treason which sounds like something you'd get at the Waffle House. But it underlines something important that I've mentioned here 20,000 times. Kushner thought he was going to get Marty Baron fired by the Post or that he was going to get the Post to retract its Russia coverage or he thought he was going to get Trump apologized to. And he thought that because the companies that own news organizations in this country think that way as well. There is no question that they have met internally to discuss how to keep Trump at bay and how to strategize what they can do today to mitigate his vengeance if he ever regains power. And the Kushner-Marty Barron story indicates it's all a negotiation. So when you and I might still have a glimmer of hope that The Post or NBC News or The Times or somebody is going to one day drop the story that destroys Trump. Just remember that even if they did not agree to let Trump help determine what they would and would not say in the Washington Post about Trump, when the time came in 2017 that Trump believed he had the right to negotiate these things, he summoned the Washington Post's publisher and its editor, and they went to the White House as ordered, which means they will do it again. Trial Roundup. Jack Smith is to answer Trump's answer to his gag order request. It is due by tomorrow. Past practice suggests the special counsel could very easily submit it today. There is also a twist in the stolen classified documents case that I swear I did not see coming. In filings made yesterday, Smith's office noted that two weeks ago at a hearing, the government stated that nine of the documents are so sensitive so secret that they cannot be kept in the secure facility, the skiff that has been arranged for Trump in Florida. While they look for somewhere in Florida even more secure than a skiff, quote, these documents can be made available in the Washington, D.C. area for defense counsel's review at their convenience. Call 1-800-SECRET-DOCS to make an appointment. Nine of the documents Trump stole are too secret to be kept in the secret facility, but he had them in the bathroom at Crap Shack Alago. This comes as the government accuses Trump of trying to stall the Florida case to push the entire pretrial schedule there back three months rather than just delay a couple of pretrial hearings about some of these secret documents. That way, nothing would start 
in May of next year. Everything would start in August of next year. He's trying to delay in D.C. as well. Some pretrial motions are due in the next two weeks. Trump wants until December. It is believed he wants to stall before submitting this fabricated executive immunity nonsense and a change of venue motion, which are themselves stall tactics. Again, this is under Judge Chutkin, who is inclined to punish things like, you know, threatening to have a potential witness like Mark Milley killed by the mob. She responds to stuff like that by starting the trial sooner. And yet a third Trump delay has washed out in New York. The civil fraud trial will start Monday as scheduled as the appellate division rejected the lawsuit against the judge. Oh, and one other piece of litigiousness, the gossip section of the New York Post, which is basically the whole paper, reports that Melania Trump, you remember her, she's his, quote, wife, unquote. Melania Trump has renegotiated her prenup. This is at least the third time the Post quotes its unnamed source. It claims she's doing this to make sure the trust package for their son, Barron, is increased if Trump serves a second term rather than serves a lifetime sentence. The Post offers no other details. But, you know, you have to wonder whether, in the renegotiations, Melania got the rights to any particular unused plot near one of the tees at the Trump golf course and cemetery in Bedminster, New Jersey. Now, as to the interference being run on Trump's behalf in Washington, I happen to think that James Comer and Jim Jordan and the other members of the House Oversight and Obstruction of Justice Committee happen to be among the biggest idiots in the history of the Congress. After their first Biden impeachment inquiry hearing yesterday, it is clear I have overrated them. Not only did their expert constitutional witness, my one-time go-to attorney guest John Turley, say this, but he wrote it in his prepared testimony so they knew in advance with plenty of time to cancel him, that he was going to say it, and they did not cancel him, so he said this. In fact, I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. Good Lord! Your first witness? It was so bad that Fox's Neil Cavuto came on and said that rather than the old saw being true, that where there is smoke, there is fire, in this case, where there is smoke, there was just more smoke. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez erased Turley and two other Republican witnesses in under one minute, in fact. Mr. Turley, I have a simple question for you. In your testimony today, are you presenting any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by the President of the United States? No, I'm not. No, you are not. Ms. O'Connor, you are the second uh, Republican witness Here today, have you, in your testimony, presented any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by by the President of the United States? I have not. Thank you. Now, Mr. Dubinsky, as the third and final Republican witness uh, in this hearing, have you, in your testimony, presented any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by the President of the United States? Uh, I have not. And lastly... From literally the first weeks I went into the news business in 1997, it was clear to me that we are not paying our elected representatives enough money 
to prevent the semi-intelligent ones from avoiding government service altogether and instead going to where the real income potential is, being a fry cook. The Washington Post last night reported that the ultra-fascists in the GOP House caucus have selected someone to replace Speaker McCarthy. It'd be Tom Emmer of Minnesota, and ordinarily one would say, who cares? What's the difference? Trot them out. Bring in a new one every week. Do a college of speakers. A new one every seven days. Everybody gets a turn. Except... Tom Emmer is the House Majority Whip. He's one of McCarthy's leadership deputies. He responded to this horror of disloyalty to the Post with, quote, I fully support Speaker McCarthy. He knows that, and I know that. I have zero interest in palace intrigue. End of discussion, unquote. I don't hear anything in there about I will not become Speaker. Plus, it translates as, when you oust McCarthy and ask me to become speaker, I will pretend to hesitate and I will act reluctant for several minutes. To me, the obvious choice to be the new speaker of the House when they do in McCarthy would be Chuck Edwards of the North Carolina 11th. Chuck Edwards, who covered himself in glory... Well, he covered himself in something at yesterday's impeachment inquiry hearing. Whatever Congressman Edwards is trying to say here, it is clear he did not bother to read any of it in advance. Kenneth Rocket Rocky Chef is a Kazakhstani oligarch who was a director at Kazakhstan's state-owned oil company. Importantly, Rakeshev maintains ties to Karim Mazamov. Ogliagark. I don't know how, after that hearing, you could actually wind up embarrassing the James Comer car crash committee, but Chuck Edwards managed to do it. Chuck Edwards, or maybe I should call him Sihuk Edward, Ed, 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 Edward. Did we have simultaneous translation on Congressman Edwards there? Also of interest here, there are not enough words to describe someone who finds out that a former business associate and a member of their family are both battling cancer, acknowledges that he's not certain that associate wants that fact known, but still cannot resist, still cannot stop himself from announcing this fact on his own podcast when the family, in fact, did not want it revealed. There are not enough words. I only need three words to describe that someone. Kurt Schilling scumbag. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. 
Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. countdown it's stevie day well tomorrow is stevie day first time for the daily roundup of the miscreants morons and dunning kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world the bronze following up on one of yesterday's winners it's lunatics Stu peters and morgan ariel now asserting on their streaming show that taylor swift and her new boyfriend travis kelsey should be executed Ariel, quote, if she's dating some high-end, you know, football player that is pushing the vaccine, then that's going to raise the probability that they'll go out and get it. Peters, quote, these people are responsible for murder. They're actually selling their souls and knowingly killing children with a DOD-manufactured, U.S. government-owned and deployed weapon of bio-warfare. I mean, these people should be held to serious account, unquote. This woman, Ariel, quote, I think people deserve to be publicly prosecuted and hung. I mean, the same thing that you say, I think we need justice in this country. I think that celebrities that are pushing it, they should be tried and they don't have any conviction because their God is Satan and they value money instead of human life, unquote. Uh, Yeah, clown girl, it's hanged. If you're busy thinking about how Travis Kelsey might be hung, that raises all kinds of different issues. And again, the National Football League is placing its Twitter ads next to posts from this guy, Stu Peters. The runner-up, Matt Gates, congressman and professional butthead impersonator. Big day for him yesterday. Matt got into a shouting match behind closed doors with Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He claimed McCarthy was paying social media influencers to trash him. Like you can't get millions of us to do that for free. McCarthy then told House Republicans he was donating $5 million to their campaigns, and Gates said, how much of that is from FTX or Sam Bankman-Fried? Whereupon the Indiana congressman, French Hill, spoke for a weary nation when he shouted, quote, oh, F off. But our winner, Kurt Schilling. I've gone through this story before. The man is nuts. He's hateful. He's terrible at business. 
He's terrible at broadcasting. And after 25 years of gradually becoming the most hated person in baseball, it would seem impossible that he could reach a new high in low. Yet there it is. Wednesday on his podcast, Schilling announced that the family of his former Red Sox teammate Tim Wakefield, who is by contrast one of the most beloved persons in baseball, was fighting cancer. This was a surprise, and it was a surprise for a good reason. The Red Sox yesterday released this statement, quote, We are aware of the statements and inquiries about the health of Tim and Stacy Wakefield. Unfortunately, this information has been shared publicly without their permission. Their health is a deeply personal matter they intended to keep private as they navigate treatment and work to tackle this disease. Tim and Stacy are appreciative of the support and love that has always been extended to them and respectfully ask for privacy at this time. Kurt Schilling revealed the plight of these eminently decent people without their knowledge or approval. In fact, apparently, as he revealed it, Schilling said he did not know if the Wakefields wanted it known, and yet he said it anyway. One of the other things Kurt Schilling has said repeatedly during his flights of bullying and self-delusion is that if he were ever to meet me, he would punch me in the face. Kurt, being a moron, forgets that we met first in 1993 when he was pitching for the Philadelphia Phillies and I was broadcasting a game for ESPN and he professed being a fan of mine. Then four years later, when I was working on NBC's telecast of the Baseball World Series, NBC brought him in to do features for the then embryonic internet feed they put together. We traveled together for 10 days. He asked for my advice several times. He sucked up to me repeatedly. He interviewed me for his segment on the internet. I explain all this just to underscore what a fraud Kurt Schilling is and that we have already met. So let me advance this discussion a little bit. Kurt, you're a scumbag. You have no redeeming features. You have failed at everything you have tried. You have talked your way out of recognition in the Baseball Hall of Fame that you would otherwise probably deserve. And now you have abused and betrayed Tim Wakefield. So if you and I ever meet again and you want to try to punch me in the face, go ahead. Please do. And then on behalf of mankind, even though I'm giving away seven years in the process, I will kick your ass. Kurt Schilling, today's, and in fact every day's, worst person in the world. Now to my favorite topic, me, and things I promise not to tell, and a complete change of mood here from the last item, because tomorrow is Stevie Day. I have told you Stevie's story before. Well, sorry, I can't resist telling you again, because tomorrow is our anniversary. 11 years. I've mentioned my dogs before. July 1st was Ted's gotcha day, five years since he came into me as a foster, and then I failed profoundly, and he's not a foster anymore. He's my little boy. A week later is Stevie's birthday. It was the big 1-1 this year. Rose doesn't have anything to do with July. She'll be almost 10, I guess, in a couple of days. 
And then a week after Stevie's birthday, Minet turned 16. I've told you about Minet. He's the rescue who had outlived his human, and they thought he had dementia. And it turned out we had to take out all of his teeth because they were rotten. And goodness, he really didn't have dementia. He just had bad teeth. Once we took them out, 90% of his fogging is cleared up, and he's gained three pounds, and he takes the hard treats, and he puts them in the water bowl and comes back for them later and then pulls them out and sucks on them like cough drops. And I don't know if I know any people smart enough to do that. And he is the best walker in the world, and he leaps over the white stripes on the crosswalks. And I thought he was confused, and then he did it like 16 times in one half-hour walk, and I realized he's doing it out of the sheer joy of still being able to do it at the age of 16. And he's now talking to me, and he understands much of what I try to say to him even though he really only understands French. It's a long story. And it all starts with Stevie 11 years ago. Because on September 30th, 2012, 11 years ago, not one word of what I just said would have made any sense to me. I had never had a dog. I'd had allergies. I'd had travel. I'd had work. And then Olivia looked at me and she said, I need a puppy fix. On September 30th, 2012, my girlfriend's family dog was dying. My girlfriend, uh, later my ex-girlfriend, would not say that the little dog was dying. Her folks would not say it. A dog, a Jack Russell Terrier, was named Casey, did her best to be the only truthful one in the whole family. She was moving purposefully and unsteadily with every step, and she was looking out at her world with a seeming mixture of acceptance and sadness and regret that the one time she really needed the bipeds to speak and act for her, they would not. I just need for dogs not to mean sadness, Olivia said, just for a while. Can we go to that pet shop on Lex? I mumbled that we could go, but that I had resisted the dog entreaties of 11 girlfriends before her, and I would successfully resist hers. I had always loved dogs, but I was really allergic to them, and my doctors had all said that even hypoallergenic dogs were a crapshoot. She said, I do not want a dog. I am not trying to convince you to get us a dog. I just want to hold a puppy for a little while. She paused, as she always did when she felt both hopeless and angry at being at the mercy of feelings, and she lapsed into the shrug emoji, as sappy as that sounds. Olivia, the girlfriend, the former girlfriend, let me make this easier on both of us. We'll call her TFGF, the former girlfriend. TFGF and I left for the pet shop in mid-afternoon, and I told her my true fear here, that my native but dormant shared affinity with dogs would, all of a moment, spring fully grown from my soul, and I would blurt, just give me all of them. I mean, what kind of life could I offer a dog? I was on television and thus always in a television studio, and thus never home for play or walks or just the prevention of canine loneliness. I had a girlfriend who lived out of town half the time. I was clueless as to every practical aspect of the dog thing. I had littered the continent with dead house plants, and I no longer thought myself capable of pulling my ego out of my backside sufficiently to take care of fish. I had literally not had a pet of any kind since 1967. 
I had come to terms with living in a wistful, hazy world in which I might inadvertently have a dog pal for a few moments, but almost never indoors and never without the pang of knowing that the hello itself contained the start of the goodbye. And I was allergic. I was allergic to the obvious, big, furry, friendly dogs, and I might be allergic to the ones that were billed as non-allergic. And if I disobeyed this immutable canon, the buried tears of permanent exclusion might be replaced by far worse ones of separation and loss. Me? I would get over it probably, but without overvaluing myself too much, to betray the love of a dog? To send a dog back? because of allergies? As TFGF and I approached the shop, there was, as there almost always is there, a small crowd undulating around it. Lexington Avenue's narrow sidewalks make these human clots easier to form even late on the first Sunday of autumn. There is also an obstacle course of grates and cellar doors and bikes chained to poles and parking meters and canopies for diners and restaurants and mattress showrooms and other places that are not quite seedy, but also aren't quite your first choice. The uptown edges of the grime and noise that constitute the maze of 59th Street Bridge approaches lend the place a congested feel even when it's otherwise quiet. We are three blocks up from the trying just a little too hard merchandising of Bloomingdale's. There are unwashed delivery trucks double parked 365 days a year and then totally out of place amid the prosaic trappings of a big city at its most meh. There they are, bouncing off each other, tearing impotently at other tiny heads and tails and paws, doing a seeming pantomime of dismemberment. Their yips and the crunch of the shredded cavorting paper are just audible through the glass and over the din of the street. They create an oasis of cute. And just in case you can't tell what they are, there's this big neon sign above their street front window that reads, Puppies! Don't make me go in. I pleaded. She reassured me. We'd go in. She'd hold the dog. All I had to do was take a picture. You don't understand. I reached for her hand. What I'm trying to say is I always wanted a dog, but I could never have a dog. Just as the door to the shop opened, she grabbed my arm. She yanked hard. She swore and she muttered, you'll survive. Man up. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. We were going towards puppies and past puppies, and the appearance of a small staircase to a training loft confirmed we were now going under puppies, and in the deepest recesses of the shop there was a wall of puppies, to our right, three cages high, six across, all a yellowish beige behind a reddish-brown formica countertop, then a structural beam, and then three cages high, two across, then a corner with a small visiting pen built into the countertop, then right in front of me, the Hollywood squares of puppies. Three high, three across, and all of their inmates, all nine of them staring at me and screaming at me and making eye contact and saying via ESP, take me home. A salesman now introduced himself as Jeffrey, and Jeffrey asked if TFGF had any particular dog she wanted him to bring to her. Let me see the Maltese, the girl. In that moment, two things struck me. 
Firstly, this was my cue to get the phone out and prepare to take the photo of her with the puppy. Secondly, the dog whom the salesman was now temporarily liberating from the surprisingly spare cage was the only living soul inside that pet shop besides me who was not making any damn noise. Every other puppy was perfecting its adolescent bark. The cats were making a bewildering variety of noises. And and was that a Norwegian blue parrot squawk? Remarkable bird, the Norwegian blue, isn't it? Beautiful plumage. This Maltese said nothing. She looked like her torso would easily fit in one of my hands if she was three pounds, a quarter of it was hair, and half of that was curled, and presumably somebody came by every day to turn what sat atop her head into a mohawk up top and a mullet in the back. Her cage mate brother seemed a little bigger, but his eyes were clearly smaller, and their ocular contrast was immediately visible, even if you still had forlorn hopes of avoiding eye contact. His shone. Hers were illuminated. He tried to get past her into the salesman's arms. She simply lifted up her head towards him, and it actually crossed my mind that she looked like she was about to say, hi, Jeffrey, how are you today? He put her gently down in the playpen at the right corner of the counter. TFGF asked if she could pick the puppy up and nodded to me to get the camera ready. Honestly, Jeffrey said, this is the sweetest dog we've had in here for months. I say that every day to almost everybody, but this time I'm actually not lying. TFGF cradled the Maltese in her arms with the dog's head facing to my right. I tapped the camera on the phone. My hand was already shaking. As I centered up TFGF and the puppy in the frame, the Maltese suddenly wiggled upright, placed her front paws on my girlfriend's chest, and just as I snapped the image, the dog reached up and kissed my girlfriend on the lips. I am, on occasion, completely incapable of remembering anything that happened in my entire life before that moment. TFGF made the appropriate sounds of approval. Jeffrey began discussing how little grooming the Maltese breed needs and the great price he could give us. And even as my head spun, it seemed silly to me that he was calculating the tax on something that was obviously timelessly and eternally priceless. TFGF said something about how we needed a minute outside to discuss it. And she handed the puppy back to Jeffrey and the dog looked at each of each of us and as if she was about to say, nice to meet you. As the pup went back up into the cage with her brother, something extraordinary happened. The little girl was reaching her head up towards the spout of the cage's water bottle. With the same graceful movement she had made to bestow that kiss on TFGF, when her brother puppy abruptly body slammed her out of the way and her tiny frame bounced off the side of the cage. And then to my shock and confusion, a deep and threatening growl, a vengeful reverberated throughout the pet shop. The growl was coming from me. The next sounds were from TFGF. My God, what's wrong with you? I didn't know it at the time, but as we turned to fight our way back out through the shop to the street, I evidently half skidded into a display full of chew toys. They nearly toppled to the floor. I nearly toppled to the floor. I couldn't see, but I didn't recognize my own tears until they hit the edges of my lips. Somehow I managed to say it again, this time in despair. I always wanted a dog, but I could never have one. She suddenly realized what had happened. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm an asshole. 
TFGF was now holding me upright and steering me towards the door to the street. I didn't listen to you. I'm an asshole. I'm an asshole. You told me I didn't believe you. I'm so sorry. Well, now the stories came pouring out, all jumbled, one on top of the other. Tiny, the St. Bernard at the Katzensteins. He only wanted to embrace me. He wasn't trying to eat me. And the McConnell's mutt next door boots used to come sit on my lap. And Tiny didn't make me sneeze. He only scared me. And the McConnell's had three boys and a mother who baked cookies by the carload lot. And boots never left their side. And I was always at their house. And if I was allergic, how was it that I never once had a problem with boots? How in the hell did that work, huh? And what about Vladimir, the stray cat my sister found? He used to live in the garage and behaved like a dog and liked to be carried around like a baby. And how allergic was I? That beautiful, beautiful little Maltese reached up and kissed you on the mouth. And the one time I took my dad's movie camera to the McConnell's house. Half of the film was of boots. And what if I went back and got the allergy shots again? And it was my mother who said she was really allergic, so I must be too. And what's the use? The little Maltese was perfect. And the next person who sees her will snap her up in an instant. And I asked them just to let me try a little dog who wouldn't shed. The only thing my mother would let me have were lizards. And I could take a Zyrtec every day. I'm so sorry, Tiny. I didn't realize. I never said goodbye to Boots. Maltese is gone. She's gone. She's gone. And she's my dog. I know it. I could feel it. She's my dog and she's gone. What happened next, Beggar's Fiction, it involves Rudy Giuliani. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Back to the number one story on the countdown and the day I fell in love with a dog for the first time and my girlfriend, the former girlfriend, TFGF, and I left the puppy in the pet shop. TFGF and I were walking, me, mid-meltdown, somehow now nearing the Park Avenue Armory, one block west and four blocks north of the pet shop that I thought we were still in. To her credit, TFGF had kept me from throwing myself into traffic or dissolving into a puddle on 62nd Street. The overwhelming sensation I had was not one of having left the tiny puppy in the shop, but of having left a part of myself there. That was my dog. And what was worse was she was obviously going to be taken by somebody else even before I got back there. Even if we turned around right away, who could resist her? I certainly hadn't. 
My chaotic stream of consciousness monologue paused only when I had no choice but to shut up and gasp for breath. And the comments with which TFGF tried to soothe me in these moments were self-abnegating and solemn. She had talked me off the limb of my certainty that the dog had already been sold and was now steering me back towards sanity. I had to, she would say later. You were having a breakdown. She said we should go home, and if I wanted to talk seriously about the practicalities of owning a dog, we could do that and still get the puppy the next morning, even if it meant delaying her departure for D.C. Don't worry, I'm sure she's still there. They were getting ready to close. She'll be there in the morning. I exhaled, and then I repanicked. She's, she's, I sniffed anew, and the tears resumed. She's in that cage with that brother of hers? In the basement somewhere? Before TFGF could answer, and I swear this is true, Rudy Giuliani spilled down the stairs from the armory we were passing. A cop suddenly appeared from a different nowhere and put out an arm and firmly asked us to stop walking, and Giuliani scuttled, rodent-like, into a waiting car. A wife was with him. I did not and do not know which number. The driver was already closing the door behind them when I shouted it. How come my dog has to spend the night in a cage while that asshat is allowed to roam around this city without a leash on him? Later that evening, TFGF said that was the first moment she thought we might just get home safe and sound after all. It was not ten more minutes back to my apartment, and we walked it in silence now. I had long since saturated my handkerchief and some tissues TFGF had in her pockets. I was breathing deeply and restoratively now, the sniffle frequency reduced to once or twice per block. And my mind was crowded with the dogs I had known. Boots, Tiny, Vladimir the Cat, even TFGF's little Casey dying out in Jersey and unaware of the seismic events which she had set in motion. I was thinking of other dogs, too. All of the dogs in all of the stories of James Thurber that I read on TV every Friday night. I had smiled along with his poetic descriptions of them, but never confessed I loved them as he must have. There was Samantha, whom my late friend Bruce Hagen used to bring everywhere, including our college radio station newsroom, the first really big dog who did not frighten me. My great aunt's Yorkie, whose gas was so potent that the Christmas just before I turned nine, my great uncle said he was convinced she had been a German terror weapon at Chateau Thierry in the First World War, and he and I had bonded because I knew what Chateau Thierry was. There was Nellie McNally, the only dog that any of my sometimes out-of-town girlfriends ever had actually put on the phone with me. In my mind, they all stood before me, all lined up, all quiet, smiling, all with the kindest type of, I told you so, dummy, on their wonderful faces. And dozens more behind them, vague shapes and sizes, who belonged to neighbors or co-workers past, or who were just chance encounters on the streets of any of a dozen cities decades before. No, I'm sorry, she said. I shouldn't have been that selfish. But now I disagreed with her, and as I unlocked the apartment door, I began to tell her of the dogs I had just been communing with in my mind, and what had suddenly become necessary, urgent, inevitable, and perfect, but about which I needed as much detail as I could in as short a period as possible. TFGF tried. Well, you just take the dog wherever you can. 
My parents have been saying this a lot lately. Now they regret not doing more things with Casey. Not adventures, not kayaking, just taking her with them or going out in the yard or just holding her while they watch TV. You just let the dog in. We went through topic after topic, cleaning, training, handling poop, walks, food, puppy sitters, moving books off ground level shelves, discipline, and most importantly of all, a backup plan in case this epiphany was false and or I was still allergic or terrified or incompetent or all three. I don't think it'll take much to convince my parents to take her. I mean, even after Casey uh, recovers, and I can take her with me to D.C. tomorrow. I'll bring her back next weekend so you can get the apartment ready and you can get you ready and you don't have to go in at the deep end right away. I interrupted her with a kiss. Let's go back there before they close. I don't want to wait till morning. I'm still terrified somebody else will realize how extraordinary she is. Unexpectedly, I had a moment of doubt at this point. This isn't just me having a breakdown, right? I mean, she is extraordinary. I'm having a breakdown and she is extraordinary, isn't she? TFGF stopped being nice and now for the first time looked at me like I'd just gone crazy, even though I just had gone crazy. Obviously, she said, that was a real kiss. The pet shop had stayed open, partly because TFGF phoned them as we hit the street outside the apartment building and partly because they knew you were coming back, Jeffrey said. You just see it sometimes. Also, you seemed kind of emotional. TFGF helpfully mentioned that I'd had a breakdown. They had all the paraphernalia ready, a little aqua bed, a series of attached gates that could be used as a pen or a barrier, a small pink blanket, a bag of training pads and the plastic pad holder, enough dry food to last 12 to 14 months, some horrific wet food that looked like the discarded early design for liverwurst, a few chew toys, a bright pink harness and a leash as light as a ribbon, a black carrying bag and paperwork with the puppy's family tree, which to my astonishment stretched back beyond her birth one week shy of three months before through the six preceding generations all the way back to six entire years earlier. In addition to all this, they could have included a moped, a stock portfolio to guarantee her college education, and a Maltese-sized typewriter with a 20-year supply of replacement ribbons, and I would have also bought them. A very nice lady named Ellie tried to train me to be a dog owner in about 94 seconds and handed me a voucher for a vet and a checklist of stuff to do. I signed a credit card bill. I think I used my own name. I absolved myself of the guilt of not getting a shelter dog because I was allergic and kind of had to go the shop route. Plus, I was not looking for a dog. I had actually fallen in love at first sight with this dog. And lastly, because no matter how the obvious and often tragic flaws in this system, there was no arguing with the fact that those dogs who came from a pet shop had as much of a right to a happy life as any other dog. At that moment, they produced her from the back room behind the block of cages where we had first seen her. Her curls had been fluffed up and her hair freshly brushed. It would be lovely to say she made eye contact from across the shop floor or was aware of our presence or yipped happily at the sight of me, and it would be completely untrue. The little Maltese calmly scanned the room, only occasionally glancing up at the manager who carried her and not once at us until she was, without ceremony or comment, handed to me. Whereupon, she immediately twisted out of my trembling hands, stuck her front paws on my chest, 
and reached up to give me a kiss on the lips, and then another, and a third, and my sunglasses hid the tears that welled up again. I managed to ask if they all did that. No, came the answer from that salesman, Jeffrey. Honestly, like I told you, sweetest pup we've had here in months. Loves people. Loves people. I'm sad to see her go. I marveled at how light she was and yet how articulated and strong her body was. Her eyes were far more beautiful than I had realized, oversized even for a puppy, almost no white visible, the reflection off the deep brown irises almost iridescent. And more astonishingly, this little soul, who was about 1 212th my age and about 1 87th my weight, and who had a great-great-great-great-grandmother born in 2006, when my great-great-great-great-grandmother was born in, like, 1800, she was meeting and holding my gaze with her own. Whatever I was seeing in her eyes, whatever of the inner being I was actually processing, she seemed to be doing her equivalent vetting. I gave her a little kiss and was by now not surprised when she kissed me again. The little tongue poked out a fraction of an inch, just enough so any one of us dumb, unsettled bipeds could tell she meant it. And then she relaxed from her upright pose and settled back into my arms, her head in the crook of my right elbow in an attitude I would soon discover she would repeat every time I ever picked her up. A couple hours later, the name came to me. Her haircut. It was Stevie Nicks's haircut. I named her Stevie. I've done all the damage I can do here. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's just let's stop the music just for a second. Stevie, you want a treat? Have you been a good girl lately? I mean, we didn't mention your birthday on the air. I'm very sorry about that. Do you want a treat? We'll say something. Stevie, you want a treat? Come on. <laughs> say that again. Okay. Do you want to tell them about physical therapy? Stevie couldn't walk three months ago. She had had a problem with both of her back knees. She tore an ACL and she had an immune disease. And these things combined and made it impossible for her to walk. And she has been going to physical therapy at the Animal Medical Center ever since. She's learned how to swim. She gets massages and she gets laser treatments every week. And she has a great time. And this is the hospital that she has always treated as if it were a spa. She has a very high threshold for pain. So through cancer treatments and surgery and half a dozen other things that have gone wrong, she's always kept a smile on her face because they've treated her so well there. And she's had such a good time. She's always acted like it was a spa. Well, here it is. After 10 years of going there. They give her spa treatments. They put her in the water. They blow dry her hair. They often trim her nails to make sure that they get the whole imprint of her feet right to make sure her gait is okay as she's regained the ability to walk. She goes for a swim. She goes in an underwater treadmill to work out. As I said, they use lasers on her knees. And then they end the whole thing with doing her hair and, and giving her a massage. It's a spa. She was right. My girl Stevie, 11 years old, and the anniversary coming up, too. All right, you were good enough to sit through this. You want that treat now? Say it again one more time. You want this treat? Say it. You don't have to sit. You don't have to be quiet. She's sitting. The one time she's sitting and being quiet. Say something. 
Do you want this treat? Yes or no? Yes? 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 Well, you're twirling, but say yes. Do you want this treat? There we go. All right. Thank you very much. All right. You've, you've indulged me long enough. Okay. Remember, celebrate Stevie Day responsibly. Please adopt no more than two dogs. All right, three. But no more than three. All right, four. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Olderman Broadcasting Empire in New York, in the Stevie Building. The music you heard was, for the most part, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown Musical Directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Brian Ray handled the guitars, bass, and drums, and John Philip Chanel did the orchestration and keyboards, and it was all produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven tunes, arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is courtesy of ESPN Incorporated. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So let's count down for this, the 997th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Tuesday. Bulletins as the news warrants. Or if I feel like we really have to celebrate the 1,000th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup. In any event, till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Is a uh, Kazakhstani oligarch. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.